0: that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead.
1: Excellent. Thanks, Jenny. Well, good morning, everyone. I already introduced myself, so you all know me now. We are... uh, Well, let me do this so I can look at you. We're continuing our series in the book of Philippians, and this will be the... uh, Seventh message in that series. We've still got a few more to go because you can tell we're only in chapter three and Philippians has four chapters. Uh, <clears throat> if you're not already there, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter three. We'll be covering the first 11 verses just as you heard Jenny read a second ago. In 1914, archaeologist Howard Carter received permission and funding to excavate in Egypt's Valley of the Kings. Not long after he began this, uh, the work was interrupted by a pesky interruption called World War I. So he had to spend several years serving the British government as a translator. But once he was free of that, he returned to Egypt in 1917 and began once again excavating in earnest in the Valley of the Kings. He was convinced that he would be able to find the tomb of King Tutankhamun, King Tut. Carter spent the next several years tirelessly pursuing that goal, and by 1922, so about five years into this process, the man who was providing the funding for this decided it was not going to happen. Well, Carter was able to convince him to fund one more season of archaeological work, and the man agreed to it, and thankfully he did, because it was in that season, November of 1922, when Carter and his men discovered the entrance to King Tut's tomb. It was one of the greatest Archaeological finds of all time. The tomb was filled with items made of gold and precious gems and yielded priceless knowledge about the world of ancient Egypt. The excitement of the find also sparked renewed interest in Egyptology, the study of ancient Egypt. Carter himself would spend the next 10 years overseeing the assessment and cataloging of all the articles and artifacts that were found in the tomb. It's a really neat story. It's an amazing find. It's something we look at often. In fact, the, uh, the sarcophagus of King Tut uh, has become a symbol for Egypt itself. You know, when you see that, immediately you think of Egypt. But I want you to ask yourself this question. Just think about this for a minute. Why did Howard Carter give up all those years of his life in the pursuit of finding and then studying and, and uh, researching the items of King Tut's tomb? What was it that was driving him? Well, ultimately, it was because Carter believed that King Tut's tomb, the discovery of it and the study of it, would be of far greater worth than anything else that he could be giving his attention and time to. Whether it was the fame that came from being the first to find King Tut's tomb or the treasure of knowledge about ancient Egypt that was gained from it, or both, Carter regarded this tomb as worth more than comfort, worth more than leisure, and worth more than any other hobby that he could have pursued. He gave up a large part of his life to pursue this very thing because he regarded it as having greater value than anything else in his life. Now, the reason that story came to my mind is because this passage revolves around that idea with relation to Christ. The heart of this passage is really the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, and how that knowledge far surpasses anything that you can ever imagine or think. And just as Carter rightly placed value on this important thing that he was after, we as believers should place the highest value on knowing our great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This passage begins with an exhortation to rejoice in Jesus. Look again at verse 1 with me. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So the first thing Paul says in this passage is just an exhortation, a command. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Now the word Lord throughout Scripture can sometimes refer specifically to the Father, to the Son, or to the Spirit, or in general to the Holy Trinity. But in this case and throughout the book of Philippians, Lord is referring specifically To the Son of God. This particular section, as I mentioned, is focused on Jesus being the center and the goal of the Christian life. And God is telling us to rejoice in, to be glad in Jesus Christ. How do you do that? How do you rejoice in the Lord? Well, think about this. If I told you that I was rejoicing... David, you're going to appreciate this. If I told you that I was rejoicing in the Dallas Cowboys victory last week... What would, that mean? <laughs> what would that mean that I was doing? Well, I would be rehearsing the ups and downs of the game. I would be talking to friends and family about how awesome the game was. I would be singing the praises of the Cowboys and their great victory and how they vanquished their foes. <laughs> I know it's fleeting. I realize that. It's fleeting. I've got to enjoy the victories when I get them. So rejoicing in the Lord is along those same lines. You are thinking about and you are celebrating the Lord, focusing on what He has done, how good He is, how awesome He is, what His work of redemption involves, talking to other people about what the Lord means to you and what He has done in your life and what He is doing in the world. That is rejoicing in the Lord. Pastor James Boyce defines Christian joy as a supernatural delight in God and God's goodness. To rejoice in the Lord, to rejoice in Christ is to find delight in Christ. Meditate on his character. Praise him for his perfect work of redemption. Talk to others about his greatness and his goodness. Focus on Jesus and celebrate him. Paul then mentions that he's writing the same things to them. He says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me. Now, that means that either he had written similar things to the Philippians in the past, of which we have no record, or perhaps when he was with the Philippians in person that he had uh, talked to them about this. Either way, what he's saying is going over the same truths of God is not a trouble to me. It's not irksome, some some, uh, translations say, and it's actually safe for you. Now, Paul is about to introduce us just briefly to a spiritual danger that's happening in the area of the Philippians, in the area of Philippi, a danger to their spiritual well-being. So in, before he mentions that warning about a danger that's on the horizon or that's even in their midst at that time, he says that saying the same things to them is safe for them. In other words, there's an idea of protection from danger. So how does rejoicing in the Lord, how is that safe for you? How does that protect you? How is that a defense against The attacks of the enemy. Well, for one thing, keep in mind that the heart of the Christian life, as I said before, the motivation, the goal, the end of the Christian life is Christ himself. So if you are rejoicing in the Lord... You are focusing on the Lord. You are celebrating His goodness and greatness, and you are holding the Lord in the rightful central place in your life. And by doing that, you are less likely to be drawn away from someone who would take away from the Lord, or someone who wants your gaze to be elsewhere. To write the same things to you is safe for you. It protects you. The particular false teaching that Paul is going to warn them about relates to a diminishment of the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ. So it's very natural that rejoicing in the Lord then would act as an immunity against that kind of teaching because you are again focusing your heart and forcing your mind to consider that Christ is everything. He is central, He is supreme, He is sufficient, and we, ne- we need no other Savior. One thing I thought about with regards to rejoicing in the Lord, I'll give you an example from my life other than the, the trivial example of the uh, cowboys. Every now and then, as a, well as a human being, I was going to say as a pastor, but this is true honestly for all of us, every now and then I have to have a hard conversation, as we all do, right? Somebody in your life, there's a rift or there's a problem that you need to confront, and whenever I have those hard conversations, after it's happened, I often, well, not often, every time, I'm rehearsing in my mind what I said. And I'll often recognize, oh man, I was just, I was so defensive, or I was so timid, I should have just told that person straight out, and I sort of danced around the issue. And then, by God's grace, my mind will be led to Christ, and recognizing, okay, I screwed up there. I can see 10 things I did wrong in that conversation, but you know who never did anything wrong in a conversation? Jesus of Nazareth, my king always bold at the right time, always courageous, always kind, always loving, always honoring God, always doing what is good for the people that he was ministering to. And that gives me a lift out of my discouragement because my standing before God is not based on how well I do in a hard conversation. Praise God. It's not based on how well I do in anything. It's based on how well Christ lived his life. It's based on the perfect sacrifice And resurrection of Jesus Christ. So rejoicing in the Lord is safe for you spiritually. It guards you against the enemy's attempts to pull away your focus from the Lord Jesus Christ. After the exhortation to rejoice in Christ. Paul then moves on to the warning that I referred to earlier. He says beware of those who diminish Jesus. Beware of those who diminish Jesus. Now, from the language that Paul uses, we can deduce that this was a form of what is known as the Judaizer heresy that was prevalent in the early church. These were people who professed Christ as Messiah and Lord, but also taught that Gentiles had to follow the Mosaic law in order to be accepted by the Lord. And the point of Mosaic law that they emphasized most to Gentiles was circumcision. Acts 15, 1 says, Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Because they emphasized the adherence to the Jewish religious customs, we call these teachers Judaizers. Now, seeing clearly that the Judaizers were diminishing the person and work of Jesus Christ, Paul very vigorously opposed these teachers. And I want you to note this that the Judaizers would have boldly and clearly proclaimed that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Lord, that he did die on the cross for our sins, and that he did raise from the dead, offering life and salvation to all all who trust in him. They would have agreed with all that. But their deviation was that they then brought in works to stand beside the work of Christ, saying, yes, the work of Christ is perfect and awesome, But then you need this other thing in order to be accepted before God. In order to truly be in the kingdom of God, in order to truly be one of God's people, you've got to add something else in addition to Christ. Their deviation from pure doctrine undermined the gospel itself. True gospel doctrine teaches that we are justified, we are declared righteous before God by faith in Christ alone. And if this doctrine is compromised, as the Apostle Paul clearly saw, if this doctrine is compromised... You no longer have the Christian faith. As Paul said in Galatians 2: if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Justification by faith has been called the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. And if you believe the gospel, if you trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then you must fight against, you must oppose any teaching that would corrupt it. Look again at verses 2 and 3. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now Paul uses three very interesting terms to describe these false teachers. The dogs, the evildoers, and those who mutilate the flesh. In that day Jews often referred to Gentiles as dogs because dogs were unclean animals. As you know a dog is not Picky about what it will eat or what it will roll in. <laughs> dogs are just, they're, they're dirty, filthy animals. So uh, Jews referred to Gentiles as dogs because we Gentiles were ceremonially unclean and we ate both clean and unclean foods. So Paul then uses that slur against Gentiles and turns it against these false teachers. He's saying that those who diminish Christ and pervert the gospel are the ones who are unclean they are the ones who are the dogs the second term he uses underscores the fact that teaching error is actually doing evil what well, look out for the evil doers he says these people thought they were doing god's work just as paul once did you'll recall When he was fully entrenched in Judaism, rejecting Jesus as Messiah, and he was persecuting the church, he said he thought he was doing God's work. These people think they are doing good works by adding this work to the sacrifice of Christ. But in actuality, Paul says, you are doing evil, you are doing people spiritual harm by pulling their focus away from the sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And the last phrase in verse 2 is the harshest. The ESV translated it as those who mutilate the flesh. A more literal translation would be the mutilation. Since the Judaizers were opposing the gospel by requiring circumcision, Paul says their practice of circumcision, because they were standing on circumcision as a basis for being justified by God, therefore their practice of circumcision is no better than the pagan religion's practice of mutilation. In both cases, these people think that by doing physical harm to themselves by cutting themselves in some way that they are therefore making themselves worthy to uh, be accepted by God. And Paul says, if that is what you are holding on to circumcision as, it is no better than pagan mutilation. So he calls them the mutilation. And verse 3 says tells us why we should beware of those who diminish Jesus. Because only those who trust in Jesus are truly The people of God. Now the Judaizers would refer to themselves as the circumcision, meaning we are the true people of God. But Paul says, No, that's not true. If you're not trusting in Jesus Christ, you are no better than these pagan mutilators. We are the circumcision, and then he gives some characteristics of the true people of God. We are the circumcision, first of all, who worship by the Spirit of God. Romans 8 says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. The true people of God worship God by the spirit of God, and only those who have Christ, only those who have trusted in Christ have been given the spirit of God to dwell in them. That means that these people who do not trust in Christ as their only hope are actually in the flesh. And the Bible says they cannot please God. They cannot offer acceptable worship to God. So we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God who is given on the basis of faith in Christ. Only those who believe in Christ are given the Spirit and thus enabled to worship truly and acceptably. And in addition to worshiping by the Spirit of God, Paul says that the true people of God glory in Christ Jesus. We boast in Christ Jesus. He is our hope. He is our glory. He is our exaltation. That's why we put no confidence in the flesh, because all of our confidence, all of our trust, all of our hope for forgiveness and salvation and eternal life is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look out for those who teach. Paul says, that Christ is not sufficient to save, that something needs to be added to his sacrifice. John Calvin once wrote, wherever the knowledge of justification by faith is taken away, the glory of Christ is extinguished. Because when you say something needs to be added to what Jesus has done, you are diminishing or robbing him of his rightful glory as the full, sufficient, and complete sacrifice for our sins. Paul said that the true people of God glory in Christ. We do not diminish the value and sufficiency and centrality of his work. Christ and Christ alone saves. It is not your obedience that saves you. It is not your dedication that saves you. It is not your faithfulness that saves you. It is Christ and Christ alone that saves you. And Paul says look out for anyone who says anything different. Beware of them. Not only should you beware of those who diminish Christ, but next he says you should put your confidence in Jesus alone. The true people of God, he just said, put no confidence in the flesh. If you're truly worshiping God, you're not trusting in what you can do or what anyone else can do or has done. You're not trusting in yourself, you're not trusting in your pastor, you're not trusting in your priest. You're trusting completely in Jesus Christ to be accepted by God. And to highlight that truth, Paul then describes the reasons that he had to trust in the flesh. This is really interesting here. Look at verses 4 to 7 again. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. You see, it is possible that these Judaizers might have said, Well, yeah, Paul, you're kind of jealous of us because you're not pure and dedicated to Judaism as we are. So, yeah, of course you would say you don't have to be. But Paul points out they're absolutely wrong. He says, no, I have even more reason than you. If anyone, who, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And so then he lists his spiritual qualifications from an earthly perspective. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He says, look, guys, if you think you have a great resume to stand before God and say, here is my merit, I've got a better resume than you do. In accordance with Mosaic law, he was was circumcised on the eighth day. So basically he's saying, look, I'm better than any of these guys who came into Judaism as an adult and then got circumcised. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. My parents were practicing the law. He was an Israelite. He was someone who didn't come to Judaism as an adult. Like I said, he was literally descended, physically descended from Abraham, a descendant of Israel. And more than that, he was, a tri- he was part of the tribe of Benjamin, which has a noble history. Unlike, for instance, Dan or some of the other tribes who have uh, black marks on their past. Benjamin was one of the tribes that stayed faithful to King David when he was anointed by God to be king. And he was part of the strictest sect of Judaism. He was a Pharisee, and he, to prove that, he says, I even persecuted the church. Such was my zeal for Phariseeism, such was my zeal for the law, that I persecuted the church. I tried to destroy the church. If you're looking for human merit, I've got human merit. And on top of that, he says, As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, I want to pause there and just take a little bit of an excursion away from it. Uh, Because of that idea. He says, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Now, for those of you who have read most elsewhere in the New Testament, Romans, for instance, you know that Paul is constantly saying, by the works of the law, nobody is justified. The law condemns. The law displays that we are sinful. No one can fulfill the law. So why on earth would he say, before I was saved, I was blameless as to righteousness under the law? What he's talking about there is basically the outward righteousness that other people could see. So he's saying, look, when I was before I came to Christ, if you looked at my life and judged it according to what you knew, you would say, man, this guy's blameless. He tithes. He attends the synagogue weekly. He studies scripture. He speaks the truth. He is blameless with regards to the law. He's honest. He's a man of integrity and so on and so forth. So all that to say, Paul is saying, look, if you want to look at human qualifications, I had human qualifications, all you could ever want, more than any of my critics. But then he adds this, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Now, interestingly, he does not simply say, you know what, those qualifications that I just listed... They really didn't matter. They really didn't help my way. He helped me on my way to, to knowing God. He counts them as lost, basically saying they were like weights on me. They were negative in the accounting ledger. Why is that? Why would he say such a thing? Well, that's because all of those qualifications actually hindered him from coming to Christ. They actually gave him a sense of pride and a sense of self-righteousness that made him think, I am accepted by God. I am one of the true people of God because I have all of these qualifications. And now once the Spirit of God opened his eyes and he could see that salvation was purely by faith in Christ, now he could look back and say, man, all that stuff I would have bragged about before, that was actually a hindrance. That was actually holding me back. I count it as loss. Not only do I not brag about it, I say, man, that was actually a bad thing for me. It was a hurdle for me on my way to knowing the one true God and being part of his people. Paul thought before he knew Christ, he thought that he was righteous and that he was one of God's true people. But in fact, he was lost and separated from God and his religious qualification masked that state of lostness. Only those who trust in Christ are adopted into the family of God. The only way to union with God. Is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul is saying he had to throw away his previous sources of spiritual confidence. And turn his gaze and his faith to Christ instead. The spirit showed him that he was not spiritually rich. But spiritually impoverished. And that's why Jesus said. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Because we all have to recognize. That we bring nothing of merit or good before God. We have to recognize that we are beggars. We are absolutely bankrupt spiritually. And we can only throw ourselves on the grace and mercy of God. And by God's grace. Hallelujah. Praise his name. He will accept everyone who does that. Turns no one away. Like Paul, you have to recognize that you are spiritually bankrupt to enter the kingdom of heaven. And not because that's the entry fee, but because that is required in order for you to put your faith in Christ. You have to turn your faith from what it was in and turn it to Christ. You'll remember the story from the life of Jesus when the apostles were in a boat and they were on the Sea of Galilee. And it was late at night and then they see Jesus walking along on the water. And they all got scared because they thought it was a ghost, and Jesus said, no, no, it's not a ghost, it's me. And then Peter, Peter said, okay, Lord, if it's really you, command me to come out on the water with you. And so Jesus said, come. Now, what did Peter have to do in order to trust Jesus at that moment? He had to step out of the boat. He had to stop trusting in the boat to support him and completely trust in Christ, because as we all know, water does not naturally support us. He had to step out of what he was trusting in and turn his trust instead to Christ. So that's what Paul is talking about here. All these things, none of them are bad things except for persecuting the church. That was no good. But most most of his qualifications were good things. But he's saying, my trust in them was a loss to me. I had to turn away from trusting in them and instead turn my gaze completely to trusting in Christ. Put no confidence in. In the flesh, Put no confidence in your heritage, put no confidence in your family, your nation, your intelligence, or your goodness to save you. Put your confidence in Christ alone. In the last part of this passage, Paul proclaims really the heart of it. That knowing Jesus is greater than anything else. Not only is that the heart of this passage, but in reality it's the heart of the Christian faith. Knowing Jesus is greater than than anything else. Look with me again at verses 8 to 11. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith that i may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings becoming like him in his death that by any means possible i may attain the resurrection from the dead in verse 7 paul said that he <clears throat> excuse me paul said that he counted as loss the things that gave him a false sense of righteousness, his birthright, his religious activities, his lifestyle. And in verse 8, he expands on that thought by saying that he counts everything as loss and that he's suffered the loss of all things and that he counts them as rubbish. What he's doing is hammering home the point that anything that might tempt him to put his confidence in for his standing before God, for his salvation, his forgiveness, his eternal life, so on and so forth, anything that would tempt him like that is trash, is to be thrown out. Throw out that confidence. It's another way of saying all my righteousness is as filthy rags. Everything that would give me spiritual pride, everything that I would put my trust in it, all of it is trash because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Paul's saying that he would allow no competition for his faith in Christ, no person, no achievement, no enjoyment, no pleasure in life. It is Jesus who forgives and saves to the uttermost. It is Jesus who gives us the right to become a child of God. It is Jesus who purchased us with His blood. It is Jesus who makes intercession for us. Knowing Jesus is worth more than anything. This term that He used, surpassing worth. The Greek word is "hooper" echo. "Hooper" is where we get the the, the uh, prefix "hyper." It means exceeding or surpa- surpassing. So it's like he's saying, Jesus is not just worthy, he's hyper-worthy. He's not just valuable, he's hyper-valued. Jesus is not just great, he is hyper-great. Above and beyond anything we can imagine, Jesus is, the knowledge of Jesus surpasses everything in its worth. Just as for Howard Carter, finding that tomb surpassed every other pursuit in his life. For us, and for all of humanity, knowing Jesus Christ surpasses everything anything and everything that we can know or experience. Knowing Jesus is so indescribably awesome that Paul was willing to suffer the loss of everything in order to gain his fellowship. Now again, it was not because Jesus is saying, here's the cost for knowing me. It was simply that in order to trust in Christ, he had to turn away his trust and his gaze from anything else that was holding it. Now I will say this, keep in mind that he is not saying that everything else in our lives is inherently rubbish or trash. He's saying that believing in those things to give us merit before God is rubbish or loss. Putting his confidence in those things, trusting in them for our righteousness. That is what holds us back from knowing Jesus. So don't conclude today that you need to renounce your family or your education or your job in order to know Christ. But if you are trusting in any of those things to be part of God's family, then you need to renounce that trust and put it in Christ instead. What you have to renounce, what you have to repent of is trusting in anything and anyone other than Christ Jesus as a basis for your righteousness. And when you turn from trusting in yourself and your attainments to trusting in Christ, then you gain him. Paul says that I may gain him. It's like now Jesus is in my my life. I have gained something. Like imagine the most powerful wealthy person that you can imagine, uh, who's number one right now? Elon Musk, okay, richest man in the world. It'd be like, wow, Elon Musk has now become my best friend. Okay, that would be a gain for you in many ways. You would be set for life. Well, when you gain Christ, you are set for life, eternal life and eternity because of what he brings to you. He brings his righteousness and his life, excuse me, into your life. Paul said that he wanted to be found in Jesus not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law. And once again, he is reiterating the point that the only acceptable righteousness is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because his righteousness is pure and perfect, right? Anything else that we can offer, it's going to be mixed And in fact, as it said in Isaiah 64, our righteousness is like filthy rags. God rejects it outright. We have zero righteousness to stand before God on. So Paul says, yeah, I don't want that. I don't want this faulty, false righteousness. I want to stand before God having the righteousness of Jesus Christ because it is perfect, complete, pure, and holy. And that is what will bring me into union with God. That is why I can approach the throne of grace with boldness. And that will carry me through eternity. Romans 3.20 says that no man will be justified in God's sight by works of the law. So if you believe you're righteous on the basis of your obedience, if you're trusting in your faithfulness to God's commands, then you're lost. Because none of us does that perfectly. Paul knows that, so he doesn't want to be found with that faulty righteousness. Now look at what Jesus, excuse me, knowing Jesus produces in a life. Paul knew Jesus. Now, Paul actually had a personal encounter with the risen Lord, which most of us are not privileged to have. Uh, If you have, let me know because you're probably an apostle. (laughs) Paul actually had a a face-to-face encounter with the risen Lord. So he knew Jesus. But then he adds later that I may know him. So this is still the goal of my heart, to know him. What he's saying is, yes, I know Jesus, and I want to know him more. I want to grow in that knowledge. Because, again, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, there is no greater pleasure than knowing the Lord Jesus, growing in that knowledge, and experiencing that fellowship day after day. Now, I recognize that our emotions don't always track with our knowledge. There will be days when you're like... Man, I know Jesus, but it really doesn't feel like it. It feels like I'm all alone down here. But let me just encourage you, not as a quick fix, but as a way to fight against this, to rejoice in the Lord based on what is true and what you know, not based upon what you're feeling. You do know the Lord if you have trusted in Him, and you can rejoice in that. Paul says that he wants to know Jesus and the power of His resurrection and even share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. This is talking about our walk with the Lord through this life, the process of sanctification, the process of becoming more like Jesus through what God is doing in our lives. We live in Christ by the power of his resurrection, the same power that the Father worked in Jesus When he raised him from the dead. And by the power of his resurrection. We're enabled to love one another. We are enabled to serve one another. We are enabled to be patient. We are enabled to be kind. We are enabled to glorify God. So Paul says yes I want to know that power working in me. I want to live a life that is pleasing and honoring to him. Because the only way I can do that. Is by his power working in me. Just as the Christian life starts with faith in Christ. All the way through it is based on faith in Christ completely dependent every moment for everything that God is doing within us. You'll recall Sam preached a few weeks ago about working out our salvation with fear and trembling, and it says that it is God who works in us both to will and to do. So we still credit the Lord God for everything, every gain that we make spiritually. It's still not based on our merit. It's still not based on our initiative. It is always and ever based upon the work of Jesus Christ within us. Paul also adds that he wants to share in Christ's sufferings. Now, Paul, as you know, when he was called, Jesus said, I'm going to tell him what great things he must suffer for my sake. So Paul's life was a very long road of suffering, shipwrecked and beaten and imprisoned and uh, stoned and so on and so forth. Stoned with stones, not uh, marijuana. Uh, so Paul was saying, look, yeah, I, I know that there's suffering in my life, and that is a sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Because just like Christ was suffering from the opposition of the world, and he was suffering from a sinful men who were opposing him, Paul was suffering in that same way. So we as believers... We are also sharing in the sufferings of Christ because just like the Lord Jesus and just like Paul, we experience the attacks and temptations of Satan and his demons to draw us away from Christ, to to, uh, discourage us, to drive us to despair and fear and so forth. We also experience the opposition of the world around us, mocking whatever values we may hold or pushing back against our uh, stand for Christ's name or his holiness. So it is actually a gift, Paul says, to share in the sufferings of Christ. In fact, sharing in the sufferings of Christ is part of how we get to know Him better. In the midst of the crucible of suffering, you will find that your knowledge of the Lord grows, as uh, Rebecca was just testifying a few minutes ago. And then... Paul says, so he talks about sharing in his sufferings and, and uh, becoming made like him in his death. He says, if by any means possible, I may in, uh, attain to the resurrection of the dead. What, what he does is close this section by looking forward to the eternal inheritance that we have in Christ, the resurrection from the dead. He's talking about the eternal state when we'll have glorified bodies. Uh, will have glorified bodies and will be delivered from the presence of sin. Knowing Jesus means that you will attain the resurrection from the dead. You'll be resurrected to eternal life. But it's so weird that Paul said, by any means possible. It's almost like Paul saying, man, I'm sure of this. My confidence is completely in Christ. And maybe, just maybe, I'll be resurrected at the end of everything So it sounds really weird that he would throw in what sounds like kind of a doubtful note right here. Uh, I read a number of commentators to try to get a feel for this. And I don't have a good answer, but I'll give you the one that uh, James Boyce gave. He was a Presbyterian pastor in Philadelphia years ago. And he suggested that what Paul was expressing was a desire to live for Christ so vibrantly that he looked like someone who had been resurrected. In other words, he thinks that what Paul was saying is not, if by any means possible, I mean may attain to the resurrection of the dead that is coming, but that in this life right now I may be living as if I'm a resurrected person. I don't know if that completely adds up. Y'all meditate on it and let me know. But either way, let me just say that Paul is the same man who wrote earlier in this book that he is sure that God will finish the good work that he begins in us. That he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So Paul is not in doubt that God will bring him to the resurrection of the dead. Uh, the spirit just inspired him to write something to, to confuse us all. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure there were more reasons than that. Those who know Christ will attain to the resurrection from the dead. And that's another reason that knowing Jesus is greater than anything else, which is really the point of this passage. Let me just sum it up this way. Nothing compares to knowing Jesus. Nothing compares to knowing Jesus. But that does bring up another question. If knowing Jesus is the greatest experience in the universe, if it should be the motivation and goal and end of our lives... If knowing Jesus is our only hope in life, if knowing Jesus is truly surpassing, surpasses all other things in worth, how do I get to know Jesus? Suppose you're sitting in here and you're thinking, I don't know him. What, what do I do next? Well, it starts by believing the gospel, by believing that Jesus is the son of God who lived a perfect life. And then he gave his life on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins and rose from the dead victorious, offering forgiveness and eternal life to everyone who will trust in him. When you trust in Jesus, the spirit of God unites you to him and you do then know him. Now you have begun a journey. Because as Paul said here, Paul had already known him and he said, I want to know him. You are beginning a journey where you will spend the rest of your life getting to know him more, growing, as Peter says, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, if you don't know him and you'd like to, at the end of service, there'll be some people in front of the steps up here, our prayer team, who would be overjoyed to talk to you about what it means to know Christ and to lead you in that. So let's look at ourselves for a minute, the the church. So if you're a believer, you're like, okay, yes, I've been there. I've prayed for forgiveness. I've trusted in Christ. Now I'm just floating along. But now I've been challenged to know Him better. So what do I do? Well, for one thing, you grow in knowing the Lord by spending time with the Lord's people. So doing this right here. Spending time with other people who are walking this life of grace. Other people who are filled with the Holy Spirit, being directed by the truth of God's word and have the love of Christ in their hearts. That helps you to know him better. I remember when I was in college, there was a uh, friend of mine, Rob Rutovsky, And Rob, if you're watching this, God bless you. Rob Rutovsky. he was from New York State. And uh, having known him, I feel like I know Jesus better. He had one of the most Christ-like personalities I have ever encountered in my life. Well, even if someone is not a Rob Brutovsky, and very few of us are, everyone in here who has been born again helps other believers to know Him just by their conversation, just by their manner of life, just by interacting with one another. We got to know Jesus a little bit better when we saw the church pouring out help and aid to those who are hurting. We get to know the church, excuse me. We get to know Jesus better. When we experience other people serving and ministering to us. And we get to know Jesus better when a brother or sister in Christ tells us what you're doing is wrong and you need to stop doing it. When they confront us lovingly. You also grow in knowing the Lord when you spend time with him in prayer. When you pour out your heart to him. Not just Now this is part of prayer, so I shouldn't have said not just. So part of prayer is, Lord help me with this or help my brother or sister with this, intervene in this situation. That is a significant component of prayer, asking God for, uh, to minister to our needs. However, another significant component to prayer is you just pouring out what is happening in your heart and life. And this is where, especially when you're struggling, it is so vital to say, Lord God, I am struggling right now. I feel like I've been abandoned by you. I feel like I'm under the waves of your wrath. I feel like I've been cut off from you. Just pour out your heart to him, and it will give you insight into God as he ministers to you by the Spirit into your own soul. You also get to know Him better by simply praising Him, spending time worshiping Him, because it sets in your mind the truths that God has revealed about yourself. And the last thing I'll mention is that you get to know God better by studying His Word. That is the only infallible revelation of God we have in the entire universe. A treasure beyond estimation, and it's right there in front of us, in our language. Most of us probably have ten copies or more. In our homes, studying the word of God, God reveals himself to you. Even as all of us who have been Christians for long know, even reading over and over something that you've read a thousand times, God still reveals himself through his word. Now along the way there are dangers that we need to be aware of just as the Philippians did. We can be tempted to believe that something needs to be added to Jesus to make us complete. You'll encounter teachings in the church that effectively say, and I say this is right, teachings in the church, people claiming to be fellow Christians, effectively say Christ's sacrifice was wonderful, but it was not quite sufficient to be complete, to be really accepted by God, you need this extra thing here. Now that is a lie. It is a lie from hell. Jesus is sufficient. Colossians 2 says that we are filled, we are complete in Him and only Him. He accomplished the work of salvation and nothing needs to be nor can be added to what He's done. All the blessings and benefits of His work are given to those who trust Him and therefore know Him. Nothing compares to knowing Jesus. Please stand as I close this in prayer. As I mentioned before, uh, when I start praying, our prayer team will come forward and they'll be up here if you have anything you need prayer about, encouragement, uh, counsel, or uh, to talk to them about what it means to know the Lord Jesus. Let's go to him now. Gracious God, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, we come before you and we give you praise and honor and glory for bringing us together, Lord. We praise you that you have birthed us in your Spirit. We praise you that you have taken us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved Son. We praise you that we know the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, Lord God. Fill us today with delight in you. Use us to rejoice in you, to tell others about your goodness and greatness, to encourage believers, to share the gospel with non-believers. Lord God, bless your church with your overpowering presence, I pray. Thank you again for loving us, for your faithfulness, and for your unchanging word. In your holy name I pray, amen. God bless you, my friends. Have a great week.